Life's better with American Family Insurance because our home policies help protect your dreams and come with peace of mind. Save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit Amfem.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. The social media is by both Adam and I. You get to play a fun guessing game of who tweeted this. And <laughs> Oh, wait. What's up? Is that correct grammar? <gasps> oh, oh, did, did you I... do it again? I don't know. I don't know. Did I? Uh... Sup, nerds? It's basketball. Welcome to Horse, a basketball podcast about everything except for the wins and losses. My name is Mike Schubert, and I'm joined by my trusted co-host, the being 30 already, to me, turning 30 recently. It's Adam Amawala. Adam, how's it going? Wow, making me feel old right off the bat. I am knocking on 35's door, my friend. Ooh, boy. You're firmly going to be in your mid-30s. Look at you go. I know, I know. Because I feel like 34, you can still kind of act like you're in your early 30s. Once you're at 35, that... Those days are over. I feel like the official breakdown is zero to three is early, four to six is mid, seven to nine is late. Yeah. So I feel like you might have already been kidding yourself. But yeah, I, I do feel like 34, the, the difference between 34 and 35 sounds like more than a year. <laughs> like when you say someone's 34, like, ah, oh, yeah, they're 34 or 35. It's like, ah, they're 35. <laughs> they are wasting away. But nonetheless, welcome to your 30s. Uh, I assume, I mean, you've only been 30 for like a week. Are you already waking up with random aches and pains that you can't explain? It was funny because Kelly and I, we went to Italy for a hiking trip and we hurt our knees on the first day. <laughs> You both hurt your knees? Well, we hiked 16.5 miles in one day. And we walked up 306 flights of stairs worth of elevation, according to my phone. So I think it was more of just uh, not not ramping up to that. And especially because like the entire week leading up to the trip, we just stayed in our apartment the entire time because we didn't want to get COVID and then have to miss all our flights because you have to test negative to fly internationally. Right. So I think that was a mistake on our end. But other than that, no. Being 30 is fine. I have decided that I'm going to be a tuck in all my shirts guy, which I think is good. I think it's just a better look for me. But also now being 30, it feels appropriate. I have a very long torso. So I feel like tucking in my shirt would like make me look taller. Maybe I'm not sure, but I did it recently and I'm feeling good about it. Well, there goes the uh, potential sponsorship from Untuck It. Oh, oh, I would never. I would actually turn that down. (laughs) I don't know anything about them. I'm sure they're just the same as any sort of fashion corporation, whatever, that uses a bunch of Instagram ads. But their whole business model is flawed. Their whole thing is like, get a shirt that looks good untucked. If you buy a good shirt, it looks good untucked or tucked in. It is not a problem with shirts. It's a problem with bad shirts. So they're solving <laughs> a problem that doesn't really exist. And and I hate that their marketing works. I, I guess it's just more frustrating that they've tricked people into thinking they're doing something good when they're just not. I have to assume that was like a Shark Tank thing. It seems like it would be. It's got to be. I mean, it, it, like you kind of have to respect the tricking white dudes who wear all birds shoes into it of it all <laughs> but i just as as so like i i care a lot about fashion and you can just get shirts that look good untucked you could have already done this you just had to find good places that make good shirts instead of just buying your boxy fit 
crap from the old navy or whatever of course it's gonna look bad on top now are you gonna tuck in jerseys too or are you gonna be that guy no no okay no, no, thank no. god i think it's more of like the things that i didn't usually tuck i now am going to tuck in like a plain v-neck t-shirt okay or something like that but if i'm wearing something that warrants being untucked like a jersey no, nah, I'm still going to let that out. Fair enough. Now, before we move on, uh, I do have to ask you an almost impossible question. Uh, best thing you ate in Italy? Man, it was tough because we ate lots of really good food. I'm going to consult my pictures because, of course, I took photos of all my food. I mean, I think you get a pass for taking photos of food when you're in a foreign land. Especially because we were there in the non-tourist season, which was very cool in that no one was there and our Airbnb was super cheap and no one was on the hiking trails. The downside, not a lot of restaurants open. Mm. And the ones that were open were quite fancy restaurants, which is fine because we saved so much money on flights and lodging by it being off season that it was okay. But yeah, if you go to a fancy food place, you have to take photos of all the food. Those are the rules. So we went to this one very nice restaurant and it had a tasting menu type thing where you could get a bunch of smaller portions of a lot of things on the menu, which was nice mm. because everything on the menu sounded good and was delicious. So like Italian tapas sort of thing? Yeah, except not bad. <laughs> it was more of just like, <laughs> it was more of just like lots of Italian food, but small portions of it so that you get to eat five different things as nice. opposed to just two. So it was really nice. So we had this one dish and I'll show you here a picture of it. Ooh, look at those little tortellinis. So yeah, they were called, I believe steak buttons. It was like a pasta tortellini type deal, but it had this incredible steak meat inside of it. And then it was in this really nice sauce. And then in the middle was just fresh, raw shrimp. Whoa. And the shrimp was, of course, very delicious because the Cinque Terre is right off of, you know, the coast. So seafood was super fresh and nice and cold. And then everything else was nice and hot. You get a little back and forth. It was uh, it was really good. Good for you. Now, would your opinions on Untuck It change if the shirts featured steak buttons? Maybe, but then the shirts would be even worse because then they would be untucked and unbuttoned. And that's bad. Th that's another, that's a look I cannot, uh, the unbuttoned button down I don't understand people that do that. I I can't. Not since the boy bands of the late 90s has that been acceptable. No, it's just, I don't I just for me that's like you're pretending that you've put effort in, but you're not. <laughs> like if you're wearing a t-shirt and then a button-down shirt over it, you're that's nothing. That's absolutely nothing. Unless you're wearing a shirt jacket that is intended for that purpose, get a shirt jacket, then you can do this. Don't just rock a plaid flannel shirt with a t-shirt underneath unbuttoned. Stop. What are you doing? I think this is sound advice. I'm he I'm here to serve, but this is a basketball podcast. We should probably talk about basketball. Okay, to get ready <laughs> to get ready to do that, let's head on over to the Teal Memorial Locker Room. Shout out to Kelly, who has been trying to rehab her knee with Dr. Teal's Epsom salts. Whoa. No relation to Teal. Yet, <laughs> you know who else takes really great baths either with Epsom salts or bubble baths and is relaxed all the time? You know, I have a feeling it's our patrons and perhaps in particular, our newest patrons. We have three of them. We've got three new patrons. So shout out to Ali Bushman and David Joy and huge shout out to our newest producer level patron, Chris Rossi. Chris joins the ranks of our existing producer level patrons, Polly Burge, Kendra Hadley, Salvatore Testa, Trust the Process, Yvonne Ellsbury, Godzilla Got Busy, He Sells Seashells, Don't Go Chasing Taco Falls, Bang, Bang, Long Suffering Timberwolves fan, Roast Beef Debris, Kate the Conqueror, Basketball is Life 2, Michaela Loves Allison, Denver Steam Nuggets, Anna Borgeli, Weird Questions, and now Chris Rossi. Now, I do have to point out that as you and many of our listeners may have noticed, there was an omission from that 
producer level patron list. And it never gets easier to do this, folks. But uh, we do have to acknowledge that there is a there's a gaping hole in our patron list. Steph Curry for three. Sad bang. Uh, mm-hmm. no longer able to be a producer-level patron, but I want to say we got a lovely message uh, from them about a very exciting personal life update. I won't share that. That's not my information to share. But basically, uh, they hope to be back in the fold with being a producer-level patron at some point. And I think it is only right, given the incredible patronage that we have received from Steph Curry for three, to uh, to pull this Hamilton style and uh, do a little one last time. You know what I mean? We, I, I need you to say Steph Curry for three. I'm going to give you the bang and uh, let's let's do it. Okay, I guess I'll do my best Lin-Manuel impression as well. Steph Curry for three. Bang! One last time. How was that? I actually saw Hamilton last week. That's incredible. How was it? It was pretty great. It was pretty great. It was probably better because Lin-Manuel Miranda wasn't playing Hamilton. Ooh, hot take. He's, he should have just written it, not starting it. You're not entirely wrong. You're not wrong. <laughs> you know who else is taking lovely bubble baths? Probably our sponsor. It is our sponsor. Our sponsor for this episode is Tavor. Now, we've talked about other alcohol-based sponsors in the past, namely Shaker and Smoot. But maybe you're not a cocktail person. Maybe you're a beer person. And maybe not only are you a beer person, but you are a fancy beer person. Well, Tavor is here for you because it is an app where you can get all sorts of craft beers and beers that aren't Bud Light and stuff. And you can get them from all over the place. It's not just local. You can get it from a lot of different small independent breweries. They work with small places that don't suck, that aren't giant corporations. And you can put all these fun beers into your cart. And when you've got enough in your cart, they'll ship them out to you. And then boom, delivered to your door. Cool, fancy, fun beers with weird flavors and stuff like that. And when you download the app, it's T-A-V-O-U-R. If you download it and then put in the promo code HORSE, you will get $5 off your first order of $25 or more. So you're getting beer, you're saving money, you're supporting HORSE. What's not to love? Download Tavor and use that promo code HORSE. Oh, yeah. And before we wrap up here, two updates. First of which, we are working on getting the digital live show that we did about the dance teams up on our merch store. So hopefully that will be live in the very near future. We'll obviously post about that on social media once it's live. So make sure you're following us on Twitter and Instagram. And also want to thank Multitude for having us as a part of the collective. There's a lot of other really fun podcasts that Multitude makes. So if you are all caught up on podcasts and you're looking for new ones, Multitude is here for you. And one of those shows that you could listen to is Join the Party. It's a D&D actual play podcast with wonderful storytelling and collaborators who make each other laugh every single week. And they welcome everyone to the table, much like Horse lets anyone come in, whether you are a basketball super fan or you're asking, what is a rebound? That is what Join the Party is for D&D. They have lots of episodes where they explain how it all works. They've got tutorial type episodes so you will not be lost. And you can just sit back and enjoy the story. So if you want to listen, you can search for join the party wherever you get your podcasts or by going to jointhepartypod.com and with that complete we can now exit the teal memorial locker room and get into full court press get it like the news oh yeah so the nba all-star weekend happened and wmba free agency is still technically going on but most of the spicy stuff happened so i think we end with the spicier thing which was wmba free agency because nba all-star weekend was fine at best let's start with the Negatives, I guess. That seems like a good place to start. The dunk contest was, but I, I no disrespect to your buddy Obi Toppin, <laughs> and I know now. Here's here's a very important question. You didn't watch it live, correct? No, because it was on at two thirty in the morning in Italy. Fair enough. That is a perfectly <laughs> so I good was excuse. Fast asleep. I could understand how if you only watch the dunks, 
you would say, hey, that wasn't too bad. The broadcast was absolutely horrific. And every mm. single person doing every single dunk took like four minutes to get to the dunk. The first one was Ooh. Cole Anthony, who had Greg Anthony come out and wore his jersey. That's his dad who played on the Knicks. Uh, Cole Anthony plays on the Magic. Uh, he laced up Tim's to Duncan, which sure, I guess it's impressive to Duncan boots. They're not meant for basketball and probably a little dangerous to Duncan. I must have taken him five minutes to put on the shoes. I, I've never seen something more unnecessary in my life. And, you know, credit to Obi Toppin for for winning and, and for making the dunks that he made. But if you had watched it live, I guarantee you, you would have the same opinion I do. Yeah, I have not watched a dunk contest live since the Aaron Gordon, Zach Levine oh, round oh. two battle which was, I think, probably the last really good dunk contest because I think whichever one was right after that, same kind of thing. Lots of prop dunks. It took a million years. That's not true. I watched the one where John Collins failed to jump over a pretend plane, the one that took place in Charlotte. I was in Portland for actually a horse live show way back in the day at a podcast festival. And it was on at a bar where we were doing a meetup afterwards. So I watched it because there was a Nick in it, I think. Dennis Smith Jr. was in it. He just got traded a couple <laughs> days before, and then he was in the dunk contest, so I was very excited. Well, isn't that part of the problem, too? It's like, anymore, it's all these very obscure players who, just because people are obscure doesn't mean they're not good dunkers. Sometimes they are. But I, I do feel like it's kind of lost its luster. And much like the All-Star game went through somewhat of a rehab a few years ago, I could see that happening for the dunk contest, where this is the final nail in the coffin that makes people be like, we need to change this somehow. Right, and they've switched up the format every now and then to try to spice it up. I feel like what they just need to do is first off, get rid of all props, no props. It just takes way too long. It's not cute. It's annoying. Just you have to wear whatever jersey you're wearing, no changing of a jersey, and then no bringing stuff out. The only thing you can do is bring out people because when you jump over people, it's always fun and it's always cool. Or if a teammate passes it to you, that's very cool. But I think they need to limit the amount of shenanigans. And then also, I would much rather just bring back the thing where you get to try it two times and then if you fail, that's it. Because at this mm -hmm. point, it's just dragging on too long. And honestly, I would rather see someone try a really hard dunk once, try a not as hard dunk the second time, and then just be done as opposed to try the same dunk a million times. Because yes, I could tell just by watching the highlights that this happened because after Cole Anthony did his dunk, no one clapped. And I figured, ooh, I bet that took a very long time and many attempts because no one looked happy. Totally. It's also funny though, when guys who are very much role players on a team choose to jump over very important players. Like, <laughs> Andrew Wiggins was used as someone to jump over, and you have to know that the Warriors GM was watching that being like, I swear to God, if anything happens to this man, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you are cut immediately. Yes, yes. So, dunk contest, not very spicy. Three-point contest, I could see that becoming the top billing thing because you always know what you're getting with the three-point contest. Someone's always going to blow up. And Carl Anthony Towns winning was very, very cool. Very, very The cool. lowest Vegas odds going in. And it hasn't been since Dirk that I think a big man has won. So that was very fun. That was very fun. I was very happy for Carl Anthony Towns. I would say other than obviously rooting for Zach Levine to have won, he probably would have been my second choice to win just because he's an incredibly likable guy, as we've talked about on the show, who's right. been through a lot in the past few years, uh, yes. losing a, a number of family members to COVID. So it was very nice to see him have that moment. Uh, the skills competition, always kind of bad. A lot of people just going through the motions and like walking through things. Mm -hmm. I do not understand why they don't bring back the thing where it was like, one NBA player, one WNBA player, one legend. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I don't it was know so good. Why the Shooting Stars Challenge. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. so fun. I think they should completely bring that back, especially this year would have been a great year to do it with the NBA 75 and how many of those legendary players were around for different things. I think they should completely bring that back. I did like that they added a half-court shot thing into it because I think half-court shots are very fun. Totally. They used to do that with the WNBA and the legend thing is basically you had to make a certain amount of shots and then the final thing you had to make was a half-quarter. That was perfect. I don't know why they got rid of it. No complaints. Yeah. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. I'm not sure if you saw any of the rookie sophomore games. That was actually very fun because they did like a mini tournament right. where they had two mini games and then the winners of those two games faced each other. I definitely felt like people were playing very hard in that game, which is also how the actual All-Star game ended up going, at least towards the end. It had a great finish. Right. I actually enjoyed it quite a bit. Yes, I think the rookie sophomore game, going back to being rookie sophomore as opposed to USA versus World was smart because you used to get weird selections to fill out the world team simply by nature of there's usually not 11 to 12 good international rookies in any given year. There's usually about six. Right. So you would have six guys that were good and then six guys who you're asking, who's this guy? What team is he on? I've never heard of this man before. Except for when Frank Nilekina got picked, he deserved it every single year. But <laughs> I do think that it's a better format. I think it's fun. I like that they try. And then, yes, for the All-Star game, what I did this year is what I've done ever since they've done the Elim ending. So if anyone's unaware, the Elim ending is a scoring system created by this guy named Nick Elam, where basically there is a set target score that you are trying to achieve at the end of the game. And... It's based on whatever the score is leading up to a certain amount of time when it's normally played. There's some big basketball tournament where I think you play regular until there's like four minutes left and then they switch it up to the Elam ending. But basically, by having a target score to hit, you're guaranteeing that there will be a game winner in the game, which is very cool and very fun. And the first year that this was in the NBA All-Star game, it was a huge success and the game was really intense now and what i did this time which was the smart play i do not watch the first three quarters of the nba all-star game i only watch the fourth quarter because they do not try for three quarters and then they try very hard for one and that's exactly <laughs> the correct way to watch it also that game took so long it took like 45 minutes it was a seven o'clock start or eight o'clock start or whatever and it started 45 minutes after the listed start time wild okay well I, i'm not going to dispute you on the fact that it started that late part of the reason it was so long though was that it was the 75th anniversary celebration for the NBA. Right, right. Which meant that the halftime show took forever. Mm -hmm. That was very, very cool. I don't know if you got to see any of that. People didn't think Michael Jordan would be there because there were photos of him at the Daytona 500 earlier that day because NASCAR, I don't know. But he did show up, got a great ovation. It was very, very cool to see all of those players in the same room. Uh, as for the performances, not necessary. We don't need to see DJ Khaled saying... They told me I would never perform at the All-Star Game, and I'm here. I saw Michelle Beadle tweet about Who said that to you? That's such a specific thing no, to I'm... tell someone they won't be able to do. No, it's like when people tweet out the things about Steph Curry, and they say, oh, and people say Steph Curry's not a good shooter. No one's ever said that. Right. He's the greatest shooter of all time. No one's ever said he's not good. Right. Even people who didn't think he'd be a star were like, this guy's a great shooter. It's just silly. Exactly. Yeah. Speaking of Steph Curry, I do know, and I tried to watch it because people complained about it so much, and I did not last more than 35 seconds. The Steph Aisha Curry HBO Max oh my drinking God. Oh game my God. promo oh my couples God. game during the Saturday night festivities three point contest dunk contest celebrity oh game which man. had no celebrities in it etc. Cringe fest. Pretty rough. I thought I would watch it. Not a hate watch, but a oh so bad it's good watch. 
I couldn't get past a minute. It was so terrible. I know this has nothing to do with it, but it would be funny if that singular moment is the reason that Steph Curry for three was no longer a patron. I would totally understand <laughs> it. It was that bad. Thankfully, it's much happier reasons that they are no longer a producer-level patron. And but Steph yeah, did show out in the All-Star rough. game. That, there was yes, a, a stretch did. of Steph just hitting completely ridiculous shots, one of which was like an almost half-court shot that he just turned around as soon as he shot it and ran the other way, which is one of his signature moves. We'll post a link to it, but it was pretty great. He made 16 three-pointers, which my fact-checkers are telling me that's a lot. So And people told him he couldn't shoot. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, overall, All-Star Weekend, pretty fine. All-Star Game, fun. Other stuff needs some tweaks. Please bring celebrities back into the Celebrity All-Star Game. There was a Peloton instructor in the All-Star Game. Oh, and I recognize it because my parents have a Peloton, and I've ridden it a couple times when I'm home for the holidays and stuff. And I was like, wait, that's the guy from Peloton? Really? <laughs> Here's a counterpoint, though. Uh, you and I are uh, what I can only describe as uh, H-level celebrities. <laughs> we are not that far away from being qualified to play in that game. I don't want the qualifications to get harder because I want to play. That's, I gotta say, that is the only thing. And I have to give a shout out to Jason Concepcion of Take Line, who does a wonderful YouTube series called All Caps NBA Weekly on Fridays. And he made a comment about the All-Star Game, which I think is true. He said, your profile should not be raised by being in the All-Star Game. You should not get more famous by being in the All-Star Game. That's the ideal situation. Because in the mid-2000s, you had Justin Timberlake in the All-Star Game. Yep. Let's go. Peak of his power is Justin Timberlake. So, yes, though I would like to see bigger names in the All-Star game, it does give me a little hope as a guy who does podcast live shows to audiences of 200 sometimes. Like, it's not impossible. <laughs> I'm telling you something. All I need is a tiny little TV role, a little stand-up clout. I'm playing in that game. I would absolutely gladly accept the bid and I would not care about the millions of people tweeting who the fuck is Mike Schubert I would not care I would be happy about it when I'm raking during the softball game at Wrigley Field baseball reference <laughs> I would be very happy about that uh, it'd be a good time so let's move on from all-star and let's move to the WNBA and free agency was wild specifically for just a few teams but thankfully your chicago sky and my seattle storm are some of the teams involved in the wildness so just to give a headline of how absurd this free agency was there were five former mvps and seven out of the 10 all WNBA players from the previous year on the market now a lot of them did return to their teams but that is just a star studded combination of folks out on the market at one point in time, which made this very, very spicy. That is spicy. First off, we had some people being re-signed to their teams as core players. Now, a core player is basically the exact same thing as restricted free agency, but you get to do it after the fact. So in the NBA, if you have a rookie on your team and you keep them through their four contract years, you can then have them as a restricted free agent, which is basically they can go out to look and sign with any team, but you get the ability to say, we will match whatever contract they agree to, and then you have to stay with us. So if you're a rookie on the Knicks, you play your four years, the Chicago Bulls try to sign you for $100 million, the Knicks go, actually, we would like to do that, so then you have to stay in the Knicks for that same contract. So, the teams that did that in the WNBA were the Chicago Sky for Kalia Cooper, finals MVP, the Connecticut Sun for John Quill Jones, and the Seattle Storm, my beloved Seattle Storm, for Jewel Lloyd. So they all got re-signed as core players, back on their teams. Sue Bird is back, as we discussed. Asia Wilson, back on the Las Vegas Aces. Brianna Stewart, back for a one-year Supermax contract on the Seattle Storm. And disappointingly, 
The one-year max for arguably the best player in the WNBA is $228,094, which seems like not enough dollars. I would agree. Yeah, big time. Now, in between this contract signing and today, we've had the WNBA get a bunch of new funding, a bunch of money came in after a valuation of the league, and that money's being funneled to help grow the league in terms of marketing and stuff like that. So hopefully going forward, we can get bigger Supermax deals for these players, but I was shocked at how low that number was. For your Chicago Sky, Quigley is back, Vandersloot is back, so the Chicago Sky kept a lot of their studs, but there were some people who changed teams. Liz Cambage of the Las Vegas Aces got signed by the Los Angeles Sparks, which I did not see coming, but not too surprised given that Liz is a big fan of the limelight, so for her to be on an LA team feels like a natural fit. Tina Charles, previously of the Washington Mystics, signed with the Phoenix Mercury, who are absolutely stacked because the Phoenix Mercury also traded for Diamond DeShields, who was on your Chicago Sky, but because of all the people that they ended up signing, wasn't going to work out to be able to sign her. They were kind of loaded at her position as well, so kind of made sense. But now the Mercury are stacked, so they've got a lot of very good players on their team. Stephanie Dolson, also from your Chicago Sky, unfortunately signed with the New York Liberty. And again, I think this is just uh, the Sky had a lot of really good players and a bunch of them were up for new contracts and you just can't bring everybody back. Angel McCautry of the Las Vegas Aces signed with the Minnesota Lynx and Emma Miesemann, a wonderful player previously with the Washington Mystics. She got signed by the Chicago Sky. So at first, when I was seeing how many people the Sky were losing, I thought, no way. But then... They brought in Emma Miesemann, which is pretty okay. They're looking quite sound. Any chance of a repeat? There is a chance. So when you look at the teams that have the best chance of winning, it's funny because they are all sky-based. <laughs> so the top four teams, at least according to my estimations, would be the Chicago Sky, the Seattle Storm, the Connecticut Sun, and the Phoenix Mercury. So clearly naming your team after something in the air is a smart decision. Maybe the Dallas Wings will have a surprisingly good year. <laughs> because they're flying in the air? Yeah. But yes, going into the year, I think the sky, the storm, the sun, and the mercury have the best chance of winning. It's going to come down to stuff like who stays healthy and do other external things happen. Some teams have new coaches, like the Mercury brought in a new coach, Vanessa Nygaard. You also have the Aces, who now are being coached by Becky Hammond, previously a very well-known assistant coach of the Spurs. A lot of people thought she was going to take over for Pop whenever he retired. And I don't know if Pop has already passed the all-time wins list or if he's very close to doing so, but that's on the horizon as well. So... A lot of interesting stuff happening in the WNBA. When the season is getting closer to starting, we'll have to bring back Jordan Liggins to dissect it all, but it was a very spicy free agency, and I'm excited for a very spicy season, which has more games in it. Wee! Nice. How many more games? I think they only added three just because they didn't add any more new teams, but I think there is lots of rumblings that new teams will be added. Some expansion could happen. I think it would be very cool. Right now, there's only 12 teams. I think if you expand to 16, that would be really cool. So I don't know how many years it would take, but if they could find four cities to put teams into to where you could have two conferences of eight and eight, that would be really nice. And I think that would be cool, especially if you could bring back teams to cities that had teams in the past, especially ones that were successful, like the Houston Comets were one of the original teams and they forpeated and then Houston got rid of their team, which I don't understand. So I would hope that they can bring back their team. Some other places could bring back their team as well. So I would love some expansion. Hopefully it happens soon. Totally. And that concludes Full Court Press. Get it like the news. 
So the way we wrapped up Full Court Press is actually a perfect transition into my That Actually Happened today, during which I will be discussing the only time a woman was drafted by an NBA team. Mm. But it is so, so, so much more than just that footnote. This is the story of the extraordinary life of Lucia Harris. And I want to shout out a listener of ours, Leah N, or Leah N, apologies if I'm mispronouncing that, who was one of several people to suggest that we discuss Lucia's life on the podcast. Unfortunately, the reason that her name has been in the news recently is that she passed away in January, but I am very excited to share her story and celebrate her life. And I'll be honest, I don't know about you, but I had not heard of her before last month. And frankly, I'm embarrassed as a basketball fan that I hadn't because my God, what a life. I agree. I feel exactly the same. I had never heard about her and it makes me very sad and I could blame myself. I could blame media. I don't know. But yes, this was a no brainer for us to cover on the show. So I'm glad we're doing it. Let's get into it. So Lucia Harris was born on February 10th, 1955 in Minter City, Mississippi, the daughter of sharecroppers. She was the 10th of 11 children. And while it couldn't have been easy to be born a black girl in 1950s Mississippi, Lucia, or Lucy as she called herself, remembered her childhood fondly. All six of her brothers and one of her sisters played basketball, and as one of the few homes with a basketball hoop, albeit a very rudimentary one, the game brought their family together and became a meeting spot for other children in the area. As a child, Lucy absolutely loved basketball, and she describes watching Bill Russell, Wilt Chamberlain, and her all-time favorite player, Oscar Robertson, as a child. And I'll do this several times, but it's so much better to hear her describe this in her own words. I would stay up long past our bedtime and put a quilt over the TV and over my head so I could watch Bill Russell, Wilt Chamberlain, Kareem, Oscar Robinson, my favorite, Lucy. You better go to bed. You got school in the morning. <laughs> okay, Mama, I, I'm going. And I'll watch it a little bit more. <laughs> By the time Lucy was in high school, she had grown to 6'3", And while her basketball skills weren't necessarily polished, her talent was immediately apparent. In a really well-made mini-documentary from the New York Times from which you just heard that soundbite, Lucy recalls scoring 40 points in a high school game in which the other team didn't even score 40 points collectively. That's pretty good. Yeah. And by the way, we will absolutely be sharing the link to this video on the episode page at horsehoops.com. It got me choked up a number of times, and Lucy seemed like an absolutely lovely, warm, humble woman. The documentary, which was executive produced by none other than Horse Hoops' favorite Shaquille O'Neal, came out last year, and I am so grateful that it did. I'm sure the producers never could have known that she would pass away so shortly thereafter, but much like the recent John Madden documentary that was released just before his passing, what a gift that it exists. Right. And it's a weird thing to find out about someone only after their passing and be sad that they're no longer on this planet. Like, I don't know if you know what I mean by that, but like, have you ever had that experience where you like learn about someone when they're not even alive and you're just sad that they're not in the world anymore? 100%, 100%. I remember that experience. Obviously, most of you listening know that I'm a comedian and one of my favorite comedians of all time is Mitch Hedberg. Gosh, I love Hedberg. He's perfectly this. I found out about him and then promptly found out he wasn't alive. Exactly, yeah. Mitch Hedberg was known for one-liners. The frame of reference I always give, if you haven't heard of him, is a joke where he said, I'm against picketing, but I don't know how to show it. So, like God, these incredibly so <laughs> quick, sharp one-liners. So it is a weird thing when you find out about someone, you're like, man, I wish I had known they were alive when they were alive so I could have met them or supported them. Or Anyway, let's get back to Lucy. 
During her high school career, she won the Most Valuable Player Award three years in a row, served as team captain, and made the state all-star team. After graduating high school, Lucia had wanted to attend Alcorn State University, but they did not have a women's basketball team, so her search continued. She ultimately settled on Delta State University in Mississippi, where famed coach Margaret Wade was restarting a women's team thanks to the recent passing of Title IX, a federal civil rights law that was passed as part of the Education Amendments of 1972, which prohibited sex-based discrimination in any school or other education program that receives funding from the federal government. Lucy immediately made an impact, helping lead Delta State to a 16-2 record during her freshman year. Lucy was the only black player on the team, and she mentioned that initially she and her teammates didn't have much to talk about. All of that changed, however, once they got on the basketball court, and once again, the unifying power of athletics was on full display. The team ultimately finished third in the regional tournament, missing out on a chance to play in the national tournament. And Lucy mentions this in the mini-documentary that she and her teammates met after the game and told each other, quote, if we get this far next year, we're going to go on to the national tournament. And they stayed true to their word. But before we talk about Lucy's sophomore season, I have to pause to talk about Delta State's team name. Buckle up, the Lady Statesman. Uh, okay, so... Clearly, the men's team was called the Statesman, and we've talked about this trend of putting Lady in front of a women's basketball team name, i.e. the Baylor Lady Bears. But if the men's team is called the Statesman, why can't the women's basketball team be the State's women? Like, it's right there. It would make way too much sense, Adam. How dare you? <laughs> That's true. That's a good point. Perhaps at that time, it was just impossible to imagine female congresspeople. Yeah, I guess. Jeez. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> During Lucy's sophomore season, the Lady Statesmen qualified for the national tournament where they would face the three-time defending champions, Immaculata University from Pennsylvania. And this was a big deal. Now, at the time, women's basketball was not part of the NCAA, but rather the AIAW, which stood for the Association for Intercollegiate Athletics for Women. Nevertheless, the arena was packed and the game was actually broadcast on national television. Immaculata was a Catholic university, go figure, and a large portion of their supporters were nuns. All right. Yeah. And before you even ask, yes, there is footage of this. And yes, it is ridiculous to watch. Yes. The game was played in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and there were also spectators waving Confederate flags. Big mm. fucking woof. Hate that. Yeah. Hate that big time. Now, it was widely assumed that the Immaculata Mighty Max, pretty awesome name, by the way. Yeah, that's pretty good. It was assumed they would win their fourth straight championship, but they had never faced Lucia Harris the previous three seasons. In the final, Lucy put up 32 points and 16 rebounds, leading Delta State to a 90-81 to victory. And this victory capped an incredible 28-0 season, making them the only undefeated team in men's or women's basketball that season. Wow. Wow. Yeah. It gets better. During her junior season, Harris led the nation in scoring with an impressive 31.2 points per game. That's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot, including an outrageous 58-point outburst in a game against Tennessee Tech. Once again, the Lady Statesman would face the Immaculata Mighty Max in the final game, and once again, Lucy and her teammates would prevail. In a lower-scoring 69-64 affair, Harris still balled out with 30 points and 18 rebounds, which is a huge <laughs> percentage of what her team did. It's, it's absurd. Wow. Between her junior and senior seasons, Harris, who had played for the 1975 U.S. national team in the FIBA World Championship and Pan Am Games, was selected to represent the United States during the 1976 Olympic Games in Montreal. And this was a huge deal because this marked the first time that women's basketball had been included as an Olympic sport. Oh, sweet. Yeah. 
And although Harris, who averaged 15.2 points and seven rebounds per game against the top talent in the world, went home with a silver medal because the Soviet Union took home the gold, she holds the honor of having scored the first women's basket in Olympic history. And I cannot describe it any better than Lucy herself. So here she is talking about what that moment meant to her. We played Japan, the very first game. They shot the first basket, <laughs> but they missed. Came back down the court, Ann Myers passed me the ball. I shot it and made it. That was the first basket in the history of Olympic women's basketball. And Ann Myers said, that's history. I said, oh yeah, <laughs> maybe that is history. <laughs> So after that incredible experience, Lucy returned to college for one final season and continued to shine, leading the Lady Statesman to a third consecutive national title, this time over Louisiana State University, where Shaquille O'Neal, executive producer, attended. Hmm. Harris put up 23 points and 16 rebounds in that final game, and perhaps even cooler, she scored 47 points in a game that season played at Madison Square Garden, one of the first ever women's games to be played in the Mecca. That's... Gosh, so many first, like, I feel like if I, uh, I, I can't, I, clearly, I can't even put into words <laughs> how many, it's just like, she was the first this, she was the first that, she was the first this, she was here for the first that. That I don't know what team she gets drafted by, but clearly she needs to be drafted by the Portland Trailblazers. <laughs> 100%, well said. Throughout her spectacular college career, the Lady Statesman had an absurd record of 109 and six. Ah, my stat people in my ear are also telling me that that is very good. <laughs> Yes, that is quite good. During that time, Harris averaged 25.9 points and 14.5 rebounds per game, earning All-American first-team honors during her final three seasons. And yet, after all of that, when Lucy graduated from college in 1977, her playing options were all but non-existent. There was nowhere else to go. The first WNBA game wouldn't be played for another two decades, and women's basketball overseas had yet to take off. All that changed, though, when that same year, the New Orleans Jazz, now the Utah Jazz, selected Lucy with the 137th pick in the seventh round of the NBA draft. And I found this very interesting, but evidently, the San Francisco Warriors, now the Golden State Warriors, had drafted a female basketball player named Denise Long in 1969, but the league voided the Warriors' selection when NBA commissioner Walter Kennedy vetoed the pick on the grounds that, at the time, the league did not draft players straight from high school, nor women. So... That happened and then didn't happen. Mm. But all that to say, this made Lucia Harris the first and only woman to ever be officially drafted by an NBA franchise. As she later revealed in the documentary, Harris felt that it was a publicity stunt and questioned her ability to compete at that level. She ultimately declined to try out for the Jazz. It was later revealed that she was pregnant at the time and would have been unable to attend training camp anyway, but she says that she was never interested. While she did play again briefly in the Women's Professional Basketball League, a precursor to the WNBA during the 1979-1980 season, her playing days were more or less behind her. Lucy started a family and struggled with bipolar disorder, but ultimately found her calling and her peace in coaching. After earning a master's in education from her alma mater, Delta State, in 1984, she served as an assistant coach for her former college team and head coach for Texas Southern University before returning home to work as a high school teacher and women's basketball coach where she had attended high school many years before. Harris and her husband had four children, all of whom went on to have very impressive careers. Here's Lucy talking about them in her own words. The NBA, I don't regret not going. Not even a little bit. <laughs> Why not? Christopher is a lawyer. 
Eddie has a master's. Christina received a doctorate. Krista has a doctorate in education, which she received from uh, Delta State. That's ladies, all of them. Mama, I didn't know you, you was a star. I said, yeah, I had my days. <laughs> In 1983, Lucy was inducted into Delta State University's Hall of Fame. She is also in the International Women's Hall of Fame. But while many people, including myself and Shubes, didn't know her name until recently, in 1992, Lucia Harris became the first African-American woman to ever be inducted into the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. Amazing. Even cooler, she was escorted by none other than her childhood idol, the big O himself, Oscar Robertson. Ho ho! That's amazing! Very cool. And it's safe to say that were it not for the contributions of, to your point, trailblazers like Lucia Harris, the WNBA would pale in comparison to what it is today. Many of these players paid tribute to Lucia after her passing last month, as well they should. Delta State University and Lucia's family released the following joint statement after her passing. Quote, we are deeply saddened to share the news that our angel, matriarch, sister, mother, grandmother, Olympic medalist, the queen of basketball, Lucia Harris has passed away unexpectedly today in Mississippi. The recent months brought Ms. Harris great joy, including the news of the upcoming wedding of her youngest son and the outpouring of recognition received by a recent documentary that brought worldwide attention to her story, end quote. The Basketball Hall of Fame released a statement saying, quote, one of the greatest centers ever to play women's basketball, Lucia Harris-Stewart, was big, relentless, and dominated the painted area like no woman before her. During her four-year career at Delta State University, Harris-Stewart changed the face of women's basketball. Opponents called her unstoppable, but... Even that barely described her approach to the game, end quote. So, in closing, as we release this episode, as Black History Month ends and Women's History Month begins, I cannot think of a better time to have honored the extraordinary life and legacy of Lucia Harris, and that actually happened. One, two, three. Three, two, one. Three on three. That's incredible. I am so emotionally touched, and now I feel very silly to follow that up with a far less heartfelt three on three. (laughs) That's quite all right. We need a balance on this show. (laughs) That's true. That's true. Everything in moderation. So for the three on three, I was inspired by the recent trade that just took place between the Sixers and the Nets with the James Harden, Ben Simmons swap. And it feels like this trade could be the rare situation where you have a win-win situation where it kind of works out well for both teams. And as much as we want to say there's winners and losers to every trade, maybe it works out for the best for both. So what I'm going to do here for this three on three is the three most lopsided trades in NBA history and the three most win-win even trades in NBA history. Ooh, I love this. What would you like to hear first, lopsided or even Stevens? I feel like lopsided is spicier, so let's start with the even ones. Okay, cool. So for the even trades, number three, what I have here is a recent one. It was when the Indiana Pacers traded Paul George to the Oklahoma City Thunder for Victor Oladipo and DeMontis Sabonis. Now, this was a situation where Paul George was at the end of his contract and he didn't want to play in Indiana because didn't really want to live in Indiana, which I've never been to Indiana, so I don't know. But he didn't want to be there long term. He was thinking of going to a more glamorous location, you know, like Oklahoma City. (laughs) So (laughs) he ended up getting traded for young players at the time who had proven themselves to be pretty solid, Victor Oladipo and DeMontis Sabonis. Now, at the time, there was a bit of a perception that the Pacers got fleeced because Oladipo and Sabonis were 
fine, but they weren't necessarily incredible. Oladipo and Sabonis were both very high draft picks, both in the top 10. And Sabonis, I believe, was a rookie. Oladipo had played for a couple years. He had already been traded from the Magic to the Thunder. But in terms of these types of trades where you're getting rid of a very well-known star player and getting stuff back in return, you usually don't get two young players with a lot of upside. You usually get one person who's fine and then a bunch of picks that you hope pan out. So at the time, it seemed very much like this could work out for the Pacers, but I don't know. But it ended up working out just fine for them in that Oladipo and Sabonis ended up balling out. They ended up trading Oladipo and getting a fair amount in return. Also, very recently, Sabonis was traded out for a very good return in Tyrese Halliburton and some other players and picks. So it definitely worked out for Indiana. And for Oklahoma City, it ended up working out in that Kevin Durant had left. So it was just Russ there. And you bring in Paul George. And that Thunder team where you had Russ and Paul George and Melo and Steven Adams, they were solid and made some playoff runs. Ultimately, Paul George, despite promising that he wanted to stay in Oklahoma City, ended up going to the Clippers and all of that. But the Thunder were able to trade Paul George and then get Shai Gilgis-Alexander and a bunch of young prospects and really launch this new rebuild that they're in. So it seemed like it ended up working out for both of these teams involved. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a pretty good trade. And to your point, it always seems inadequate when you trade a superstar level player. But that's the whole point. You don't know how people's careers are going to pan out or who they are going to ultimately turn into like Tyrese Halliburton. Shout out to the Kings for being an expertly run basketball organization. <laughs> Good job, Kings. <laughs> Seething with sarcasm. So number two, I have one that was just a right place, right time sort of trade that ended up working out pretty well for both teams. The Minnesota Timberwolves traded Kevin Love to the Cleveland Cavaliers and Luke Maba Amute and Alexi Shved to the Philadelphia 76ers. The Philadelphia 76ers traded Thad Young to the Timberwolves and the Cavaliers traded Andrew Wiggins and Anthony Bennett to the Minnesota Timberwolves, as well as a 2016 first round pick to the Philadelphia 76ers. So this was a three team trade that actually worked out pretty well for all of the teams. Now, this was post-LeBron signing with the Cavaliers, shocking the world. Do you remember where you were when that happened? For me, it's one of those I know exactly where I was moments. I do not specifically remember where I was. Where were you? I was in London because this was right after I graduated college and... I was doing my, oh, I just graduated college, let's go around Europe for two weeks, classic sort of thing that American college students are one to do. And I remember speaking with my friend Ricky during that offseason saying, okay, now that we're going to be out of college and we have money to spend, let's go to a Heat game so that we can make sure we see LeBron, Wade, and Bosch all on the Heat before they go their separate ways or retire or whatever. Because Heat tickets were always so expensive, whatever city they came to, then at college it just wasn't feasible. And then I was really sad that LeBron <laughs> left the Heat because I wanted to see all those guys play. I still have never seen LeBron play live because his tickets are always so much more expensive, but I'm going to have to do it at one point. Yeah, you got it. I've seen him play once during his rookie season. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's very fun. Yeah, I remember I was checking Reddit NBA in my friend Sam's place in London, and I was eating prawn cocktail chips, which are fucking delicious. They don't sound like it, but I guess I'll trust you. They taste absolutely nothing like a prawn cocktail. They don't taste like shrimp. They don't taste like the sauce or the lime or whatever the hell else is in a shrimp cocktail. 
they're very good. I can't describe the flavor. It's one of those, oh, they taste like prawn cocktail chips. They're good. I promise. They're great. Okay. I'll take you at your word. (laughs) So with this trade, basically, the Cavaliers were, as you do when LeBron is on your team, you try to go into win now mode. They just had the number one pick in the draft back to back years, right? With Anthony Bennett and then Andrew Wiggins. Mm -hmm. Anthony Bennett, famously not very good at basketball. And Andrew Wiggins at the time, he had multiple Michael Jordan based nicknames. His nickname was Maple Jordan because he's from Canada. So there was lots of upside. And Kevin Love, when he got traded, this was incredibly good buzz cut million rebounds a game. I'm also shooting a bunch of three pointers a game. I'm putting the entire Minnesota Timberwolves organization on my back, Kevin Love. So this was a very high profile trade in terms of very established star and very highly regarded prospect. And they swapped. And then the 76ers just got in the mix because they had to make the contracts work and they got a pick out of it. So yeah, why not? (laughs) Everyone wins. Hooray. So now we can move on to the number one most even trade. And funnily enough, it involves your Chicago Bulls and my New York Knickerbockers. So in the late 80s, the New York Knicks traded Bill Cartwright and a 1988 first round pick and a 1988 third round pick to the Chicago Bulls for Charles Oakley, a 1988 first round pick and a 1988 third round pick. So they basically swapped their picks, betting on which team is going to be better or worse than the other one. And then they swapped their big men. So Charles Oakley didn't make as much sense in Chicago anymore because the Bulls had signed Horace Grant and he was a better power forward. And Bill Cartwright didn't make as much sense in New York anymore because he was a center and Patrick Ewing was getting very good at basketball. So they basically just decided, hey, let's swap these guys who can be in better fits. And also, I bet your team's going to be worse than ours. And uh, they swapped picks as well. And honestly, pretty even. And both teams ended up being pretty good in that season right after and the years after. And I think Bill Cartwright is a beloved portion of those early 90s Bulls teams. And certainly Charles Oakley was a hugely beloved Nick in the early 90s. So I feel like it worked out pretty well for everybody. Yeah, I mean, everyone loves Charles Oakley except for James Dolan. But uh, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, good players getting swapped and then continuing to be good on their new teams in positions that made more sense for them. What's not to love? Totally. We we love people getting in better work situations, right? We absolutely do. And if you want more information on Charles Oakley, where can you find it? In Chris Herring's book that I've been reading a lot and is really good, Blood in the Garden, check it out. Charles Oakley, ridiculous human being. Now we can get into some lopsided trades and the spice. So number three is one that I think might raise a bit of hubbub and hullabaloo, but... I want to set the record straight about it. On February 1st, 2008, the Memphis Grizzlies traded Paul Gasol to the Los Angeles Lakers, along with a 2010 second round pick for Kwame Brown, Javaris Crittenden, Aaron McKee, and the rights to Mark Gasol, as well as 2008 and 2010 first round draft picks. This one, I feel like we get the revisionist history because Marc Gasol turned out to be an incredible basketball player. But at the time, this was an absolute fleecing of the Memphis Grizzlies. Paul Gasol had basically single-handedly carried the Grizzlies into playoff contention. He was playing so well. The Lakers were already very good in the year 2008. And then they got to add Paul Gasol and not give up that much stuff for it with some players who had proven to not be that great. And then the picks, yeah, sure, whatever. Thankfully, Marc Gasol, being one of the all-time great basketball players, panned out pretty well for Memphis, but even though he did have some intrigue as a prospect, in no way was this a fair trade. I think they just got super lucky that Marc Gasol panned out as well as he did. Right, right, right. Yeah, I agree with that. And I remember being a kid when this happened and just being very surprised, mainly just because the most profile names 
of it were Pau Gasol and Kwame Brown. And we can put a link to the famous Stephen A. Smith clip where he talked about how this was an absolute steal for the Lakers. The infamous Stephen A. Smith Kwame Brown rant, which is just an all time broadcasting moment. (laughs) So the number two most lopsided trade of all time is the very, very, very infamous James Harden trade, the original James Harden trade. (laughs) Now we've got three, but this one is still the Harden trade and forever will be. So many moons ago, James Harden was on the Oklahoma City Thunder alongside with Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant and Serge Ibaka. Pretty good team. But after a finals run, Harden had one year left on his deal, was trying to get contract extension stuff going on with the Thunder. For some reason, they did not want to pay him the max amount that he wanted, which I think was very silly, but also the Thunder was run by garbage people who stole a basketball franchise out of Seattle unjustly. So not surprised that they wanted a penny pinch. So instead, they tried to trade away Harden so that they wouldn't just lose him for nothing because he was not going to stick around if they weren't going to give him the max. So they traded James Harden to the Houston Rockets in addition with Cole Aldrich and Daquan Cook and Lazar Hayward for a package that included Kevin Martin, Jeremy Lamb, two first round picks and a second round pick. Now, the first round pick did become Steven Adams. Very good player. Kevin Martin was someone that made sense at the time, in terms of he had played a pretty good year for the Rockets that previous season, very good three-point shooter, and people just thought, he's going to fit in well with the Thunder, this is okay. But he did not play very well for the Thunder, and it was very much a you-don't-know-what-you've-got-till-it's-gone thing, especially because once James Harden was allowed to become James Harden, and not the sixth man, because on the Thunder, he didn't start, he came off the bench. And once he was able to become starter James Harden in Houston, it just looked really, really bad in hindsight because he absolutely balled out and the Thunder really missed him. And I think that this trade happened because James Harden played very poorly in the finals and it was some recency bias, which might happen with the Ben Simmons situation. But I think there was bad taste in their mouth because he was bad in the finals. He was, but he was very young. Give him some chance. This was their first big playoff run. Even though I know that Harden and Westbrook and Durant played together in Oklahoma City, it feels like it's not real. Like when I see pictures of the three of them standing next to each other on the bench, I'm like, did that really happen? Like I I almost want to go back and watch highlights of them playing together because I can't remember it for some reason. The thing that was so weird about it is that finals was between the Oklahoma City Thunder and the big three of Miami Heat. And basically, even though the Heat pretty much destroyed them, everyone was thinking they'll be back. It's okay. You don't have to worry. And they were basically the young Heat. It was, look at this big three that we've got, plus Serge Ibaka. Look at these four incredible players that we have that are all very young. They're going to be unstoppable for years to come. What a great job of drafting the Thunder have done. And it was similar to what I had felt with the Heat. I was thinking, all right, cool. Can't wait to see these guys play. What a fun team. I loved the Thunder. I thought they were so cool. They had that one playoff series where they almost upset the Lakers. And that's when I started to really like them. So I was excited to watch these three dudes for years to come. I almost that offseason bought a James Harden custom tank top that said Uncle Beard on the back instead of Harden. (laughs) But then he got traded. I was very glad I didn't end up buying it. But I thought they were really fun. And it was so shocking that they did this as just like a money-saving move. Absolutely absurd. And it just shows you that you never know how long something's going to last. You never know how long a team is going to stick together. So 
what I would say to past Mike Schubert, who didn't have a lot of money in college, you should have just bought the tickets, my guy. <laughs> well, let that be a lesson to you when you buy your tickets to sit courtside to see Sue Bird during her final season. Can't wait. Cannot wait. All right. You ready for the number one? Do you, you probably know what I'm picking for this one, don't you? Does it involve Olden Polynice? Oh, that's actually going to be in my five on five. So Okay. I'm talking about the Scotty Pippen trade, which yes. our patrons will get to see yes. on the Patreon. That almost made number three, but I felt like back in the day, people didn't understand how the draft worked <laughs> as much. So I went more <laughs> with modern things in terms of this was very clearly a poor decision. What are you doing? What I've got for number one is the Brooklyn Nets acquiring Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce, Jason Terry, and DJ White oh, in exchange for their future. Every pick <laughs> ever. They traded <laughs> Gerald Wallace, who was a very good player at the time. Chris Humphreys, who famously was married to Kim Kardashian for a month and a half. Marshawn Brooks, Chris Joseph, and Keith Bogans. Wild that this trade included two guys named Chris, both spelling their name K-R-I-S. But the players are not what's important here because the Nets gave Boston their first round picks in 2014 and 2016 and 2018 with the addition to swap their rights to first rounders in 2017. This was a way of circumnavigating a rule that was put in place to stop teams from being bad. I believe it's called the Stepien rule, named after a guy whose last name is Stepien, who did this and screwed over a team for years to come. So they named this rule that you couldn't trade first round picks in successive years, but you could do swaps. And a swap is basically, you see at the end of the year, which pick is better, and then you get the better one. So it's basically like trading it anyway. So they had given away four first round picks, basically, and a solid player in Gerald Wallace to get players who were good, but were very old. And it was the ultimate win now move. They were a new team. They had just moved to Brooklyn. The owner was now this Russian oligarch, Mikhail Prokhorov. Interesting that we're recording this on February 24th, given what Russia is doing right now. Cool. Uh, very fun stuff to wake up to every morning. Oh man. And he wanted the Nets to win immediately. He did not care about the future. He had just bought this fancy team and paid for the fancy arena and he wanted them to win. So he didn't care, mortgaged the future to try to build around Darren Williams and Brooke Lopez. And it didn't work at all. And the Nets were really bad for years to come. I also remember at that time, and I would have to look this up, that he was quoted as saying something like, if the Nets don't win a championship in the next two years, I'll leave my wife or something ridiculous. Or it's like, I, I feel like you maybe just want to leave your wife. I think perhaps, <laughs> I think perhaps you, you there's like a, a producer situation where you want this team to be bad because what you're doing does not make sense. I mean, giving up that many picks, especially knowing that that team did nothing. I, I mean, I, not since the early 2000s at Old Navy have I seen such a fleece. <laughs> Second Old Navy reference <laughs> of the pod. <laughs> Yeah, it was bad, and it was not necessarily seen as too bad at the time because people thought, this is a super team. This is totally going to work, and I think this was just as people were understanding how important draft picks were, and people didn't realize what was going to happen. I think what this really was the first one where you had mortgaged a bunch of the future to get stars slash a star, and 
this was the first time in Danny Ainge, really ahead of the game, he was the GM for the Celtics. He was basically betting on the Nets maybe being okay for two years and then being really bad afterwards because their players were old. And that's basically what happened. All these guys that they traded for, no one lasted more than two years on the Nets. They were fine in that first year, but with injuries, they didn't do very well in the playoffs. And then Paul Pierce got traded away. Kevin Garnett got traded away. Jason Terry only played one year for them. It didn't end up working out. And the Nets were the laughing stock of the NBA for years to come. Right. It's a move where if you don't win a championship, you look like you've made a huge mistake. Right. And they were never even close to being a championship team. Yeah. They had solid players in Brooke Lopez and Darren Williams, but it wasn't like they were one guy away. They lost to a Bulls team that didn't have Derrick Rose. I remember that series distinctly in 2013. I went to one of those games where Joakim Noah just put the Bulls on his back and had an absolutely monstrous Game 7, but no one cared. I, I bought a playoff ticket to see the Bulls play the Nets at the Barclay Center for like $40 that year. Yeah, I mean, still nobody really cares about the Nets, but we've seen some teams do that now. Lakers and Clippers did this to basically get some stars in. And look, the Lakers won a championship in the bubble and the Clippers have a really good team. And yes, they're dealing with injuries, but they might win a championship too. And if you win a ring, who cares? But the Nets did not win a ring. And then Prokhorov ended up selling the team. And it was one of those things where like you could understand this dude because really the big investment that this dude got from buying the Nets was whatever rights he got to the Barclays Center because that was the real moneymaker is just all the concerts and stuff there. And we have been to a basketball game at the Barclays Center. Not good unless you're with very close seats. Upper deck sucks. Concerts at Barclays are great. And shout out to Barclays in that the architecture company that my wife used to work for designed it. So it's very pretty and awesome. But unshout out because that company did not treat my wife very well. Thankfully, her new company treats her way better. Shout out to my wife. That is good. Did you know that Mikhail Prokhorov is 6'8"? Maybe he should have been on the Nets. You, you suit up, guy. Come on. Put on a jersey, lace him up, get out there, turn the team around. Unbelievable. And by the way, just to clarify, I am looking up his wiki page and it says <laughs> shortly after purchasing the Nets, he vowed to get married if the Nets had not won. Oh. He was threatening himself because he didn't want to get married. He said he vowed to get married if the Nets had not won the championship within five years. And then it says in July 2015, he rescinded the pledge saying that NBA commissioner Adam Silver had, quote, taken his place by marrying his fiance in May. What does that mean? We have so much to unpack. I don't know what that means. Wait, Is that a real thing? That's a knew that actually happened. I am adding this to my growing Google Doc list, which is called Horse Ideas in all caps. And in that actually happened, I will be putting Adam Silver homewrecker? <laughs> Question mark? I mean, it says that Adam Silver has been married to his wife, Maggie, since 2015. Was was she dating Prokhorov? This is fascinating. Yeah, let's oh my go. God. I already got my that actually happened for the next time locked. Let's go, baby. Oh, boy. So that was the most lopsided trade in NBA history. I believe Prokhorov sold the team a couple years after they flamed out and weren't going to be good. So I'm sure that guy's doing just fine. He's a billionaire. Nothing matters. Nothing matters to them. I am so fascinated by this. I can't stop thinking about it. In what <laughs> world is Adam Silver Mr. Steelio Girl. I, that is very, <laughs> very surprising on a lot of levels. Well, we'll have to figure that out in the future. But for now, that was this three on three. And I'm excited for the five on five for those other trades. Amazing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Horse Horses, hosted by Adam Amawala and Mike Schubert. Our editor for this episode, we know in advance, is Brandon Grugel. 
Brandon, you can still say something funny here if you want to. <laughs> Thank you, Mike, because there's been something I really wanted to talk to you guys about. It's really important. Thanks, Krugs. Thanks, bud. The music is by Bettina Campomanes. The social media is by both Adam and me. You get to play the fun game of I Wonder Who Posted This. The art is by Allison Wakeman, and the website is by Kelly Schubert. Thank you to our producer-level patrons, Polly Burge, Kendra Hadley, Salvatore Testa, Trust the Process, Siobhan Ellsbury, Godzilla Got Busy, He Sells Seashells, Don't Go Chasing Taco Falls, Bang, Bang, Long-Suffering Timberwolves fan, Roast Beef Debris, Cade the Conqueror, Basketball is Life 2, Michaela Loves Allison, Denver Steamed Nuggets, Anna Borgeli, Weird Questions, Chris Rossi, and I have to give you the opportunity one last time. Uh, Steph Curry for three. Bang. Nice. Very regal bang. Mm-hmm. It was It was like a cannon. It was. <laughs> like a salute. I liked it. I liked it quite a bit. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Horse Hoops and on Twitter at Horse underscore Hoops because... Horse Hoops got traded in one of those lopsided deals and it was just a bad situation. <sighs> That's too bad. You hate to see it. Mm-hmm. Check out our website, horsehoops.com, for links to some of the stuff we talked about today, including the absolutely phenomenal Lucia Harris documentary that I alluded to in my That Actually Happened. And if you want to get some bonus content, you can go to patreon.com slash horsehoops. You can get bonus audio. You can get bonus writing. You can get jerseys that say cash considerations on the back. You can get stickers, a whole bunch of fun stuff, all at patreon.com slash horsehoops. And if you go to horsehoops.com slash merch, you can check out our merch, which in the near future will include the digital live show that you can download and watch and pretend you are there as well. Cool. But we're going to close out this episode like we do every single episode by putting our hands in the middle and saying something on the count of three. I think we have to honor Lucia Harris. I, I think agree. just a simple thank you, Lucy. I like it. Thank you, Lucy, on three. One, two, three. Thank, thank you, Lucy. Lucy. She, without her, maybe the WNBA isn't the WNBA. And I love the WNBA, so shout out to Lucy. Indeed. Indeed.